Well, hello, ladies and gents. Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com, and today I have special guest David Krantz on the line. We dive deep into genetics. We talk about our genetics. We talk about how those genetic predispositions can be changed and turned on and off via our environmental factors. We talked about epigenetics and how the decisions we make can impact our offspring. We talk about the inner cannabinoid system, a a subject I know very, very little about, uh, but he really opened my eyes as to, to how that can impact everything we do, um, how certain gene expressions can impact you know, our receptiveness of THC, CBD, and all the different cannabinoids uh, in the whole full spectrum. See, I can't even speak straight. I don't know that much about it. Uh, but I really enjoyed the conversation. David is a very smart guy, and I learned a ton, and you will too. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast with David Krenz. And David, we're live. How are you, man? I'm doing well, Robert. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Thanks for taking the time. So you reached out and emailed me, and I started kind of digging into your background, kind of what you've been up to, what your what your focus is, and I was immediately drawn to you know all the genetic work you're doing. I just kind of want to dive into some background, kind of give us a little bio on what got you into the health and nutrition space in the first place, and then kind of dive into the weeds on everything genetics and, and all of that entails. Yeah, sure. So yeah, I like a lot of people found myself in the health and wellness space because I had to figure out my own health issues. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in my early 20s, I started having some weird health problems crop up. And at this time, I was a touring musician, actually. And I was living, you know, a pretty late, late, late night lifestyle, I would say, you know, sometimes being out until four or five in the morning, uh, playing gigs and just doing doing the thing. And I really hadn't given a lot of consideration to what I was doing with my health. And then I started having these issues where I would pass out randomly. Like I would just, I, there were a couple of times where I woke up on the floor and I didn't know what, what had happened. And I was experiencing some pretty severe nervous system dysfunction. And I went to a couple doctors, you know, well-trained cardiologists and people that, you know, I was hoping they could give me some answers and they really didn't, they really didn't have much for me. They were basically like, well, in, in our eyes, you're young and healthy. You're just going to have to learn how to deal with this. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of embarked on the path of figuring out how to affect my biology in whatever way I could. And I got really into you know, the biohacking world and, and that space and uh, found keto around that time, actually, and started making some changes and, and saw some improvement in a lot of areas that I, I actually didn't expect. You know, I was, I, I, my cognitive function came online in a way that I had never experienced. And then this really interesting synchronicity happened where I had been listening to this one podcast. And I think I listened to probably about 60 episodes of it. I, I listened to every single one that was out there by this doctor named Dan Stickler, who was an expert in genetics and epigenetics and using genetics to predict what diets work well and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was, I was, you know, I found this guy and I just thought there's no one else really talking about this. And then I, I took a walk on my lunch break one day at work and I realized that the logo of this podcast was literally on the building next door to me. And it turned out that this doctor actually had an office right next door to where I was working. And I initially just made an appointment because I wanted some blood work done. And it turned out they're actually looking to hire someone who had a background in audio engineering and music 
because they were wanting to create some meditation programs and, and brainwave entrainment programs. Mm-hmm. And I was like, all right, yeah, this is perfect. Here's the, the life path thing just happening, unfolding in front of me. So I started working for them. And right around the same time, uh, this doctor developed a training program for other coaches and doctors with his method of using genetics. And I was in the right place at the right time. He asked me if I would help beta test this training program. And I actually said no at first. I was like, hey, I'm a musician. I'm not really a health practitioner. Like, I know I've kind of figured this stuff out for myself, but I wasn't really confident to do it for other people. And he kind of pulled my arm a little bit and tried to convince me. And I finally said yes and um, ended up taking this training with him a couple times before he made it public and found, you know, found myself as kind of an early adopter of this system that really launched me into doing this work for other people and found that I really had an affinity to it and really enjoyed it and was able to take what I had learned with my own health issues and apply them to other people and really, you know, help people move towards optimal health in their own way. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Genetics, genetics have always fascinated me because it's, it's something that, you know, you can't innately change your, your genetic background, but you can like turn these different genes on based off of your environmental factors and you know that that's that's incredibly fascinating in itself but then this whole concept of epigenetics and how you know what you do in your day-to-day can have a you know direct impact on you know your offspring and and their offspring for years to come like that that it really peels the layers back and it makes you responsible for anything you're doing in the day-to-day yeah, absolutely. And it, it's it's simultaneously a really empowering perspective for some people. Mm-hmm. And in another way, it can make people feel guilty about not doing enough right right before like they had kids or something like that. So I think it's an important thing to you know really think about how to frame it well for people and give people the opportunity to, like you said, know that they can change their genetic expression, which in a lot of ways can override some of the genetic predispositions that we used to think were way more fixed. So that's what I do with clients is help them, you know, really understand how their bodies are wired and then what are the environmental variables that they can be matched up to that will really allow them to thrive in a way that, you know, having that information might, you know, might not be available to you without really picking that apart. When when you're working with people, what is their initial, like, just outlook towards genetics? Like, do they have this kind of you know, it, it's it's just my genes. I have no control over it kind of mentality and it, it just is what it is or do they feel like they can actually, you know, sink their teeth into it and, and have a direct impact? Well, a lot of the people that find me are already aware of the idea that they can have that direct impact. I don't work with a ton of people that have that fixed mindset. I very selectively f- look for people as clients that have that malleability and understanding. But I think there's always a a few things that psychologically we're kind of, you know, holding on to around, you know, I'm going to inherit this or I'm going to inherit that. So, you know, I would say that my clients predominantly come with the idea that they have control over their health, but then exploring what that means in a deeper context is usually really interesting because it can often lead to realizing, hey, I have more control than I actually thought. Can you take a moment to kind of shed some light on how much control we actually have? I mean, we can't change our our parents, obviously, but, you know, just kind of dive into how our environmental factors can turn on or off these different gene expressions. And I feel like hearing that people like if they listen to this and they just have a no no clue as to what they can control just simply giving them some context i think would be would be beneficial 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and maybe we should just do a general definition of epigenetics um, just to, to start. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, when I was taught biology in high school class, um, you know, I, we learned the central dogma of biology, which was the truth for many, many years. And it still is part of the truth. But this is the idea that your genes code for proteins and those proteins code for traits. And this idea leads to people thinking that, okay, these traits are fixed, right? You're, you have this code, it doesn't change. Your hair color is going to be a certain color. Your eyes are going to be a certain color. Your disease risks are going to just kind of be what they are. And then really the first inklings of this happened around 30 years ago or so. And in the past 15 or 20, there's been an absolute revolution in the understanding of what genetics are really doing. And this is epigenetics, which is talking about these markers that get put onto the genetic code that, like you said, either cause genes to get turned on or get turned off. And you can imagine it kind of like each one of your genes uh, kind of has like a dimmer switch on it. And when that when you encounter something in the environment, you put something in your body, you're exposed to stress, pretty much anything you can imagine in your daily life, your body is responding to that and going, hmm, maybe we should make more of this certain stress hormone to respond to the stress. Or maybe we should create more of this neurotransmitter in order to respond to the situation. And so all of these biochemical reactions in the body have these genetic components to them. And what they've found is some things are relatively stable, but a lot of the things that we experience are very adaptable and very changeable. And the, the predominant view right now is that our genes are less the, say, the, the blueprint for our bodies like we thought. Mm -hmm. Then they're more the environmental sensors that change that blueprint dynamically. And so what, what I mean by this is like, um, you know, people used to think that, oh, we're going to find the depression gene. You know, we're going to find this gene that makes people more depressed or we're going to find the, the, the heart disease gene. And very quickly, once we map the human genome, we realize, OK, there's way more complex than that. And so then they started looking at, OK, maybe we can look at, you know, 50 different genes that all combine together. And those are going to be the set of depression genes. And they started looking at it like that and realized, OK, it's actually more complex than that. And really what it is, is certain genes create sensitivities to the environment. So say someone has a variant that might predispose them to depression if they're exposed to higher levels of stress at this particular time in their life, you know, early childhood. Mm -hmm. Or they might have a gene that predisposes them to higher heart disease risk, but only if they're eating the wrong type of fat for their body. Right. It's that new, it's the, the environment gene interaction that matters. So what that really means is that if you kind of match yourself up with the right environment, say you have the a higher predisposition towards depression. Well, if you do the things to mitigate stress, you do the things to develop positive relationships and you, you do the, the things that lower inflammation in the body and, and look at it from, from all these different layers, then your, your risk of depression might actually be lower than someone with the quote unquote normal variant of it. And same thing with say heart disease. Uh, if you match yourself up, say you have the, some of the variants that can create higher risk with the wrong types of fat, um, and, you know, I think this is important for people listening from a keto perspective. Um, 
you know, you do match yourself up with the, the correct types of fat for your body, then, and, and you do exercise and you lower inflammation, then your risk of heart disease, you know, probably will go down significantly lower than someone with the quote unquote normal, normal variant. So people with the less sensitive variants might be able to get away with more, so to speak in Mm -hmm. life, but people with the more sensitive ones, there actually can be advantages to that when you're in the right uh, environment in the right setting, putting the right things in your body. And so one of the things I love, I, I love to stress with my clients is that, you know, there really aren't good or bad genes. They're really just genes that are suited for different environments. Yeah. That, that to me makes a lot of sense. I mean, I feel like a lot of people, you know, they, they try and base everything off of what their, their genes are telling them. They'll do like a 23 and me test and they'll base all their environmental factors off of those you know, predispositions, but I feel like it's, it's just so much more complex than you can, you can base off of any one test. Like you really have to dive in deep and there, there's, I mean, I don't know what degree of variance there is between how much these environmental factors have on your epigenetic, uh, you know, factors going forward, but I feel like it's empowering to know that what your genes are is not your end all be all. Like you can have environmental fluctuations that you have complete control over for the most part that can have a positive or negative effect on whatever your gene predisposition is. Right, exactly. And and that's the trouble with something like 23andMe or a lot of the other uh, direct-to-consumer tests that you can go out and get is that they don't usually do a very good job of explaining like, okay, you have, say, higher heart disease risk. Well, what are the, the factors that might change that, right? And 23andMe doesn't really provide that information. Um, and it takes a, le- a kind of higher level of understanding to really incorporate that. And the other thing that's really important, like you said, in terms of the complexity, is genes are not very good at predicting this stuff on their own. What really matters is the combination of understanding your genes and then understanding what's expressing right now. So if you go out and take a test, unless you're, you're doing an interview with someone who's running the test and they know about, you know, what's, what's been your struggles, what's, what's your goals are, where, where you're at, you know, like adding that level of information really gives you the ability to, to use the genes in a way that allows you to make much stronger recommendations to say, oh, well, you know, you've got some predispositions for your gene to express like this. They clearly are expressing in this way or they're not expressing in this way. It, maybe it's because you've already done something, you know, in your life, you've already matched up some of these environmental factors. So the, the real art of using this information, you know, just like a blood test, it's like you can go out and get a blood test online, but if you don't know how to look at patterns, you know, like look at how different, blood markers relate to other ones, you're going to miss a lot of the important inter- information. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm passionate about like helping people use this information well, because there's a lot of um, kind of half-assed use of it out there right now is the way I feel about it. Yeah. And it, it's, it's just interesting because it, it goes far beyond just like your, you know, direct environmental effects. Like it goes to, to supplementation. For instance, some people are going to be able to uptake caffeine and, and the body's going to be able to use that much more so effectively than, than others that have the, the mm-hmm. improper uh, you know, gene expression for fully utilizing caffeine intake. Absolutely. And then um, one of the interesting things about 
that is a you know there's most genes have multiple functions like the gene that codes for the breakdown of caffeine um that's you can kind of loosely classify people as like a fast or slow metabolites or a caffeine that same enzyme that that gene codes for also breaks down melatonin mm-hmm. so again it's like you know people think of like oh i've got the slow caffeine metabolism like you know that's a bad thing but there's actually an advantage to that from the melatonin perspective because you can carry higher levels of melatonin at night longer throughout the night. So there's always these kind of trade-offs in terms of um, how we're suited to the environment. I feel like this has become a very, you know, quote-unquote sexy thing lately, like this whole gene, uh, you know, expression, like really diving into that. And I feel like because it's become so so popularized, like you're saying, there's a lot of just really, you know, ignorant informal testing mechanisms out there that do not paint the perfect picture by a long shot um because i feel like like i did one a while back and it was telling me that like i I would not be able to digest fat very well and i mean that's obviously not the case um Mm -hmm. so like for anybody listening to this if they really want to dive in and and kind of go the right path instead of just you know being led astray and you know doing some random generic you know ignorant testing format what what do you recommend for them yeah, you know, I recommend they work with a professional. You know, I, I think it's it's nice that people can go out and get these tests, but I'll tell you in terms of the level of education that it really takes to to know how to integrate this information, I think it's really worth working with a coach or a doctor who's familiar with using this stuff. Because when you see something on the test like, okay, you know, you can't digest fat really well, um, it's it's important to be able to know what that gene is actually coding for. The gene itself probably is not coding for your body's ability to break down fat. It's probably coding for a uh, you know something like protease or lipase or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then if you can look at how that's linked up to say other genes that also might influence that, that's really helpful. So, you know, working with someone who kind of, who can look at this from a complex systems perspective, I think is really the way to go. And it's not to say that you can't get information on your own. Like there's, there's good information out there. It's just a matter of, uh, do you really want to spend the time digging deeper than what the kind of stock top level answers are for things right so like getting you can use like 23andme to get like just the the raw genetic data but then linking up with an expert that can actually go over that data and assimilate it for you is key right i think that's really important and i'll I'll have so many people that come to me after they've tried to figure this stuff out on their own and like you know they get some information out of it but eventually they go how do i what do i actually do with this stuff so you know I, i see a lot of opportunity for people that are interested in, you know, understanding their genetics to mm-hmm. work with someone who can give them a higher level perspective on it. Have you ever interacted with uh, Dr. Anthony J? I know the name, but I, I don't think so. He's he's a genetic guru as well. I had him down at the farm and we went over all of my data. Just incredibly smart individual. But he's really opened my eyes to how like... Um, like certain chemicals that we come in contact with, like just day-to-day household chemicals, like certain mm-hmm. fabrics on the the clothes that we wear can have a, an epigenetic effect on like our hormone levels and estrogen levels. Like I had no idea that it went that deep, but it, it's, it's truly eye-opening when you start going down the rabbit hole. Absolutely. When you look at things like PCBs and um, BPA and all of these 
common toxins that are in plastics and like you said, household cleaners and beauty products and uh, phthalates, you know, things like that. Most of the toxic effects of those things are happening on the epigenetic level. And they're causing, for example, with something like BPA, that's an endocrine disruptor. It's causing genetic, it's, it's causing genetic expression changes to the genes that control hormones like testosterone or estrogen. Mm -hmm. So, it, it does go really deep. It, it is um, kind of the deepest layers there are. And and this is also something that, you know, you mentioned before around the transmission of this to uh, future generations. It's not that we're just transmitting the chemicals themselves um, in terms of, you know, stored in spinal fluid or whatever, you know, we're actually transferring the chemicals physically. We're often transferring the epigenetic effects of those toxins and chemicals that then mark the next generation's genes in a similar way. So we're you know really talking about when we're talking about getting rid of environmental toxins, we're talking about the toxins themselves, but also the residual effects of them as well. Yeah, and see this I mean this is just incredibly fascinating. And I, I don't know I don't know this information very well at all, but you know, people just assume that you know what their genetics are is is simply that like, they have no control over them, and then any you know offspring they have going forward, I mean, it just kind of it is what it is. But like to to really drill down into this and see how your lifestyle factors and decisions, you know, whether you're drinking, smoking, training, sleeping, like all of these things can have a direct epigenetic effect on on your lineage. It really makes you or should make you open your eyes to the fact that you you have responsibility over this and like you owe it to your kids sake if nothing else to, to make sure you get your shit together for lack of a better word right absolutely and i i look i try to look at it even on a more global level like from the whole species perspective at this point like are we gonna be the carriers of the genetics and epigenetics that are going to make our species sicker and sicker and more depressed and fatter or are we gonna take the accountability that we have and, and try and shift that and like you know this isn't a metaphorical thing at all like there's um not a tremendous amount of studies because it's hard to look at generational effects in a rigorous controlled kind of way in humans i mean in 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 mice there's tremendous studies that show the effects of this transmission mm -hmm. but there are a few instance, instances where there's been, say, world events that you can go back and track what happened in future generations. Like there's a there's this kind of archetypal example they call the Dutch hunger famine, where in World War II, an area of Holland was blockaded from getting food for about six months. And there was widespread famine in this area. And what they found is that women that were pregnant at that time depending on whether they're in the first, second, or third trimester when they had limited food resources, their kids would have different um, health effects. Like some had higher propensity for obesity, like way higher than average. Some had higher propensity for uh, type 2 diabetes, like way higher than average. And some actually had propensity to be really thin. And it depended on what phase of, of pregnancy that they were um, kind of starved in. And beyond that, they've actually tracked grandchildren and found that those effects are passed on 
to grandchildren as well. So, and they're not totally linear. It's like the, sometimes things will skip a generation or only be present in, in males versus females. And you see this also in children and grandchildren of Holocaust survivors, which actually is one of the big reasons why I was so fascinated with this information at first. My, my grandparents on my mom's side were in concentration camp camps in Poland. And so I'm a, I, I'm, I'm, part of what I'm about to describe in, in the study um, is that children and grandchildren of Holocaust survivors tend to have heightened stress responses and more propensity for anxiety. And when I look back and, and look at that stuff that was going on in my early 20s with the nerve, nervous system dysfunction, I think that I was actually set up in some ways from an epigenetic perspective to respond abnormally to like minor stressors in this kind of really exaggerated kind of way. So, so my path has been, you know, a lot of meditation, a lot of breathing techniques, a lot of things that really um, work to epigenetic alter some of those stress related genes. Well, it, it's crazy. Cause like you start looking at, at just the current day and age, you know, like with uh, what we have going on in the world with the, the virus right now and everybody's mm-hmm. like, like just, you know, shutting themselves in their house and, and basically living in a bubble. I mean, I, I don't think it's too much to, kind of anticipate that that's going to have an epigenetic effect on possibly future generations immune system like if you're just stuck in a bubble and not going out and always wearing a mask then you're not being exposed to just day-to-day normal bacteria that you would probably build up an epigenetic uh you know tolerance for maybe that's totally off the off the wall but that makes sense to me yeah, you know, I, I think that I, I'm personally more concerned about the stress effects. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I think people, even if they're wearing a mask and they're in, you know, more inside, I think they're still getting some degree of bacterial transfer. But I would be way more concerned about the effects of stress at this point on, on future generations, just in terms of the financial insecurity that people are experiencing. Um, I mean, we've seen, you know, suicide levels, domestic violence, all these things spike. And there's just robust data that stress both during preconception, like before you even get pregnant, that like the three month period is a critical window of what's going on before you get pregnant, what what's programming sperm and egg selection as well as during pregnancy. I mean, chronic stress is really detrimental to uh, future generations like that. So, I mean, I, yeah, I'm concerned. I, and, and incidentally, that will probably also affect the immune system as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would attribute it more to the, the, the stress response. Um, and, you know, you kind of want to think about it like when our bodies are, um, you know, conceiving, we're trying to select egg and sperm in a way that prepares the future generation to be able to respond to what the current environment is right now for the parents. So if we're in a high stress environment, we're going to try and set up our kids to have this heightened stress response that, you know, is adaptive, right? None of these things are, are pathological. They're all just adaptations. And unfortunately, when we're putting ourselves in an environment that looks like an adaptation that creates more anxiety or more depression as a way to respond to this. It's like, you know, that's what we're seeing right now. And yeah, I'm, I'm pretty concerned about that as well. This would be an impossible question to answer. And it's honestly probably not even a fair question to ask, but I'm just curious. <laughs> um, but with what you're seeing and what you know about genetics, epigenetics, and kind of how our lifestyle factors and environmental factors 
impact this egg and sperm selection and just you know future generations do you, do you feel like just our population as a whole i mean you look at what people are consuming from a nutritional standpoints how they're living from a lifestyle standpoint i mean they're definitely outliers for sure but do you feel like we're we're headed on the right trajectory or the wrong trajectory without <laughs> being too doom and gloom here <laughs> i would say on average probably the wrong trajectory um but again I have faith in the outliers. I have I have general faith. You know, I, I, I'm an optimist overall. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that people are aware there's something wrong here. There, people are aware that food they're eating isn't real food. You know, and I I like to work with the outliers that are aware of this stuff in hopes that that understanding will spread and. <laughs> I'm totally not an expert on on policy or, or ways to shift this at a mass level, but I do sense that there's a bit of a f- kind of shift in the general desire to have a, a better, healthier lifestyle overall. And I think people generally recognize that like pumping ourselves full of pharmaceuticals and and fruit loops like just isn't a health promoting thing. Now the behavior change aspect and getting out of the habit of that, that's a totally different conversation. I, I think a lot of more people want to do that than are able to right now, you know? Yeah, that, that makes sense. I, I, I don't want to be so stuck in my echo chamber of like the biohacking ketogenic low carb space that I don't, you know, see things holistically. Um, I mean, because it just seems like everybody that I'm, you know, interacting with, communicating with on a regular basis, they're all relatively educated in the know about epigenetics and kind of the the compounding effect that has. Mm-hmm. So I'm always curious to to get an outside perspective on what the overall pulse of the community is. Um, so it's super interesting for sure. But yeah, we got we got to be optimistic. <laughs> no good in being pessimistic with it, but realistic at the same time. Yeah, realistic and. You know, again, it, it, there's the the complex interaction between personal choice and desire, and then say economic status and what the the broader kind of abilities of people are to say uh, get information. And, you know, you, some people don't even have internet access. You know, it, it's it's kind of that. Um, it is easy to get stuck in our own bubbles of of like of like minded people who really are passionate about this stuff. Um, I, I would love to see the mentality of of just wellness in general be a more broadly adopted kind of mentality in, in the general public. You know, I, I think mm-hmm. every, everyone benefits from that, right? 100%. You had mentioned um, like breathing techniques for stress reduction. Can you kind of dive into that a little bit further? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, so where do you want to start? I could talk about some different different aspects of it yeah yeah i mean just kind of like uh, make it applicable i mean i i'm always stressed so no knowing some good go-to breathing <laughs> techniques probably be beneficial sure so there there's two that i i really like um that i i teach to to clients kind of right away the first one is what what i call this belly breathing and this is really where you're breathing low and slow and by by low i mean you're actually instead of centering your your breath into your chest which is how most people breathe you're really pushing it down into your diaphragm and the reason for this is that 
there's a nerve in the body called the vagus nerve that connects the brain to all of the other organs in the body. Mm -hmm. And it also is responsible for the branches of the nervous system in controlling our fight or flight response and our relaxation response. And there's actually a ton of these nerve endings in the diaphragm area in the stomach because it connects to all these organs. And so when you physically extend and distend your stomach in, in your diaphragm in that way, you're actually stimulating the vagus nerve. And that can help physically calm your, your body down. And trying to do this at a rate of about five or six seconds on the in-breath, five or six seconds on the out-breath has been found to be kind of the optimal breathing rate for doing this. So, you know, an easy way to do it is you put one hand on your chest, kind of right over your heart, and one hand right over your stomach, over your belly button. And you just feel where your breath is moving your body. And slowly, you just try and move the bottom hand more with each in-breath and out-breath and kind of shift that focus from the, the chest breathing down to the belly breathing. And this is a good exercise to do, you know, just three to five minutes can make a pretty big difference. And this is also something that can be helpful for improving actually recovery from exercise. Um, the vagus nerve and that parasympathetic, sympathetic nervous system response is really important in terms of heart rate variability. Um, and, you know, that's a measurement that a lot of people will use to gauge readiness for extreme training, that type of thing, and look at how that changes and, and how people recover. So optimizing kind of the vagus nerve, optimizing the branches of the nervous system can actually help your body recover from, from heavy exercise as well better. And in general, I mean, it, it, it uh, is going to improve mood, improve stress response, improve anxiety and, and, and mental looping, that type of thing. And it's a good thing just to practice for, you know, five, 10 minutes a day if you can. I've been trying to do stuff like this, like the the breathing techniques prior to consuming a meal because mm. I used to just like scarf down a meal and, and not think twice about it. But then I got to thinking, you know, you're, if your body's in a sympathetic state, you're not really absorbing all of those macronutrients. So you can be consuming, you know, a, a very specific, you know, counted out number of, you know, protein, fat, carbohydrates, whatever. But if you're not absorbing it, what's the, what's the point? Uh, so kind of focusing on my breathing and reaching a parasympathetic state before food consumption, I feel like that makes a pretty tangible difference. Yeah, absolutely. That's actually been a personal exploration of mine too recently. I'm really trying to track that and see how my body responds. And um, yeah, I think that's critical. Like sometimes how you eat is just as important as what you eat. I noticed like I would do this, you know, in my contest prep when my calories were very low and I would notice that my satiety would actually be noticeably better on mm -hmm. days where I would focus on breathing prior to that meal because it's like my body was actually absorbing those nutrients rather than it just being flushed through my system. And because I got better nutrient absorption, I had more satiety throughout the day. Totally. And it's like, if you think about it, you know, how is your body going to respond to eating while you're running from the tiger versus eating while you're sitting, kicking back and enjoying life? Like there, that's, there's going to be some different hormones secreted in those different situations. Definitely. Definitely. What was the other breathing technique? You said there's two that you typically go to from the get go. Yeah. Yeah. The other one is called box breathing. And this comes actually from military, um, from, 
from SEAL special training, that type of, of world. And the, the pattern is breathe in for four counts, you hold that for four counts, then you breathe out for four counts and you hold that for four counts. So you can imagine it's like a box with four equal sides and it's a really good focusing breath. It's, it's like more of a, in a tactical situation, I need to calm my body down really quick. I need to be able to focus and know what my surroundings are and just put my body in a state where I'm in flow. So it's a really good flow kind of breath. It's a little bit more of an active thing than the belly breathing. And the the pausing in between the in-breath and the out-breath is really the, the key with it. So it's just four counts, uh, basically on each side of that box, in, out, in, out, and just repeat? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Nice. In, nice. hold, out, hold. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, you had also mentioned, kind of before we started recording, how you know, you've taken a keen interest towards the genetic predisposition of someone and their body's ability to benefit or not benefit, I guess, from, you know, certain cannabinoids and, and all that. I, this is uncharted territories for me, for sure. So I'd love to kind of just dive into that because there's a lot of interest around, you know, CBD, THC nets becoming legalized in a lot of states. And again, this is not my area of expertise by any stretch of the imagination. So shed some light on that for me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, even if it's not your area of expertise, I'm sure you've noticed that some people are just naturally attracted to cannabis and some people really could care less or really don't like it. Mm-hmm. And there are some pretty strong genetic correlations with these dynamics in the way people respond to cannabinoids. And I got really interested in this a couple of years ago when I was getting first getting into the nutrigenetics with nutrition and what we we're just talking about. And realized there's actually quite a few good studies on the same gene variations and response to cannabis. And there just wasn't a lot of people talking about it. So I've actually, over the past couple of years, developed a test that looks at response to cannabinoids. And some of the things that you can really predict well are things like how you metabolize and break down THC. Are you someone that's going to be very sensitive to it or someone who can probably take higher doses of it and and be okay? Uh, Things that influence cognitive function. You know, there's kind of the, the stereotypical notion of like the stoner who can't get off the couch and can't remember anything Mm -hmm. versus say someone like Snoop Dogg who has, you know, built an empire while smoking blunts. So clearly there's some type of different in difference in constitution. And so a lot of the studies that have been done are actually on cognitive function and response to THC when people use it and, you know, doing things like, consuming THC and then giving people memory tests or looking at reaction time and various domains. And you can get a feel for, are you someone that's going to be more or less functional with this and are and ways to change supplements or other herbs or different strains to kind of interact with that. And furthermore, one of the other strengths is actually predicting negative responses from THC. You know, I'm generally pro-cognitive liberty, like the idea that people should be able to put whatever they want in their bodies and and change their consciousness in whatever way is 
you know, they choose as long as it's not harming other people. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, being relatively pro legalization, I think it's equally important to talk about the potential risks. And for certain people, THC use does increase the risk of psychosis or schizophrenia. And there's some genetics that can be informative around that in terms of looking at, hey, does this, you know, pose more of a risk for you versus other people? Especially and, in the context of a younger, you know, not fully developed individuals, right? Right, exactly. And, you know, mo- I would say that for the majority of people that are younger, it's probably a good idea not to use THC till your brain is more developed. I, I certainly didn't follow that when I was younger and I kind of <laughs> wished I had, I wish I had now. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, it can definitely give you a better indication of, you know, are there other real risk factors with it? And for most people, no, but for certain people, it, it's worth having that conversation, I think, as, re- as a responsible uh, pro-cannabis person. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, this, this is, it's interesting to me because there, there's always like this, you know, shade of gray and people mm-hmm. always want to compartmentalize and put in, you know, black and white. Um, but I, I, like I said, I don't really know much about, you know, the legalization, the politics, everything like that. But I've been like really just diving into what people are saying and kind of where they're coming from. If they've got like an educated, responsible reason for what they're advocating for. And the more, the, the deeper I dive, it, it becomes just more and more apparent that it's so individualized and now that we're seeing how the genetics can have such a you know an impact on how they're going to respond that makes sense that would be very individualized yeah and you know one thing that's kind of important to to know is you know you see cbd as being touted for being good for so many different things it's like if it's a condition it 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 works for someone for it you know it can help you win the lottery it can do everything but and, and, you know, that confuses a lot of people, but the one thing that is really critical is that the endocannabinoid system itself, the receptors that are scattered throughout the body are present on essentially every single cell type. So every system of the body has a backdoor through the endocannabinoid system, which is why you see it so effective for so many things. The nervous system, uh, you know, the... Uh, pulmonary system, every every system in the body has a relationship to the endocannabinoid system. So for certain people, if that's unbalanced, adding CBD or or in some cases THC might be the solution for those those people if they're not getting success from other routes that are not really looking at that, that layer that sits underneath these other systems. So it's, it's incredibly individual and there's something that's known as the endocannabinoid hy- deficiency hypothesis that you know I think is worth mentioning in, in that some people are prone naturally to have higher or lower levels of their own cannabinoids that the body makes. You know, we usually think about cannabinoids as things from plants or synthetic things, but our body also produces our own, which is why we have these robust receptor systems all, all throughout the body. And there's certain traits that go with either deficient cannabinoids or excess, like obesity is actually associated with having high levels of your own endocannabinoids. On the flip side, something like anxiety is associated with low levels. And so depending on, you know, what the person's health status is and what goals they have, you know, you might look at different cannabinoids for those things. And looking at the genetics can also give you an understanding of, you know, are you more or less likely to carry 
higher or lower levels of cannabinoids. So that's another genetic factor that some people can be um, more predisposed to. And this inner cannabinoid system, I mean, it's I've heard it referred to as like the like you've got the, the your brain, obviously, and you've got your gut, which is oftentimes referred to as the second brain. And then this inner cannabinoid system is I've heard it referred to as like the third brain almost. I would say that's pretty accurate. One of the things that it does is is it can balance neurotransmission in a way that if you have neurons that are, say, underfiring, it can actually speed up the transmission and cause them to kind of, it's almost like an adaptogen. And endocannabinoids can also inhibit over-transmission of neurons. So it, it does act as this balancing agent in that kind of way. So like like marijuana, for instance, that has got, you know, the full spectrum. So it's got all like how, how many different cannabinoids are there? There is actually over 100. We know right now about maybe what eight to 10 of them do pretty well. And of those eight, THC and CBD are really the only ones that have had significant clinical trials on them. So this is why a lot of people are so excited about it is because it's kind of the wild, wild west and wide open for future exploration. And we our understanding of it is very, very small right now. Gotcha. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah. I feel like, you know, CBDs have gotten just this massive amount of hype. And I feel like some of the marketing is ahead of some of the science. because like you yeah. just see this this marketing, you know, freight train coming everywhere. Um, but I, I am curious to dive deeper into this and see, you know, from a genetic standpoint, but also from like a, you know, if, if someone's got a deficiency, could this, you know, benefit them in some form or fashion, get something firing more effectively? It, it's interesting to make it, you know, all full circle and see how, you know, how your environmental factors, what your training's like, what your nutrition's like, and then this, you know, third brain intercannabinoid system, how that can be also leveraged to, to reach a specific goal. Right. And I love the way you phrase that. I mean, I, I look at cannabinoids as just another piece of the whole system's puzzle, right? It's, you know, I, I think that's part of the the marketing hype that frustrates me uh, is the idea that, oh, well, you just need to use CBD and, you know, the, then that's that's it, right? It's, it's no, it's, it's part of the regimen. It's part of the routine. And for some people, it can be profoundly helpful. Um, especially for things like, you know, anything that's inflammation related is very worth trying. And one of the actions of CBD that I think is often overlooked is CBD doesn't directly activate cannabinoid receptors, really. Very, very weak interaction. THC is a you know, powerful agonist at receptors. So it directly activates them. One of the things that CBD does really well is it inhibits the enzymes that break down some of our own cannabinoids. So it raises the levels of our cannabinoids, the ones that are in our body, you know, that aren't psychoactive, that just act as these regulatory factors. And so CBD gives our body, you know, if we are out of balance and we are not producing enough of our own endocannabinoids for whatever reason, CBD kind of corrects that balance at the level of allowing our body to kind of produce the the biochemicals that it's used to rather than, uh, you know, something like THC, which again can be really useful, but it's a little bit more of a, um, how do I put this? kind of shock to the system in a way, you know, there's mm-hmm. a little bit more of a, 
of a downstream effect potential for THC, whereas CBD is is very gentle in its action in terms of how it just gets your body to have more of, of a substance it's producing naturally anyway. Now, in, in regards to CBD, is it better or is it indifferent to have like a, a CBD isolate or one that's like a full spectrum CBD that has, you know, trace amounts of the entire spectrum? Yeah, I think the full spectrum is pretty critical. And the the studies seem to show that you can just, the the effects are much stronger at lower doses with the full spectrum versus isolate. And so for your listeners, you know, there's different forms of, of CBD out there. Um, some are going to be you know, just the CBD molecule completely isolated on its own. And then there's other ones that contain the full uh, bouquet of cannabinoids and terpenes, which are the flavoring molecules that the plants produce in, in, the, uh, in the product. And they found that there's something called the entourage effect where multiple terpenes together combined with these cannabinoids in the way that the plant produces them tends to increase the synergy of these compounds. So the, one of the things that they found is that with isolate, you have to be very precise with the dosage. There's a window where not enough doesn't work, the right amount works, but then you can actually overshoot it. And too much doesn't seem to have a, a positive effect. For some reason, the entourage effect or taking it with the full bouquet of terpenes and, and other cannabinoids seems to make it so that it's you don't actually overshoot it. You can just keep using higher doses and it still works. You don't have that bell curve as much as you do with an isolate. So that's one of the issues with the market right now is that there's a lot of companies just producing cheap isolate that is kind of crap. So I think it's really well worth knowing your source, knowing the uh, the analysis of the product you're using and making sure that you're getting something with at least the full range of terpenes in it. Um, the You can find some good blends that don't have THC in them that the THC has been removed, but you have to make sure that the companies are that do that are using a process that is not heat or solvent related that damages other terpenes. And there are some that that can do that, um, but in general, you know, I, I'd say go for the full spectrum when you can. Is there like a specific company or brand you recommend and vouch for just being high quality? Yeah, there's one that I really like called Ama Hemp or Ama Healing. A-M-M-A. They've got some really excellent products. Uh, I'm an advisor to them, full disclosure, uh, but I, I agreed to come on because I took a look at their supply chain transparency and their ethos and what they're doing in terms of really making sure that the product quality comes first. And so I'm, I'm really confident in what those guys do. Very nice. Is there any, like, I know we talked about how, you know, certain individuals that can have a genetic makeup that is going to lead to potential adverse effects from large dosages of THC, for instance. But that aside, just in you know CBD and other uh, cannabinoids, do you see any downside to having these in the system, like exogenously? Or first of all, what, what could potentially lead to a you know, down-regulated production endogenously? Like why do you think some people are having uh, deficiencies there? Yeah, that's a really good question, and I don't have a great answer for that. I think that that's something to that the science will continue to 
elucidate and have better answers for over time. Um, you know, I think some people are genetically prone to it, you know, looking at some of the genes. And then um, there also are situations, say, for example, uh, like there's typically low endocannabinoids in depression. And we know that trauma is a big factor in depression. PTSD is another one where they know that PTSD is associated with low circulating levels of anandamide, one of the main endocannabinoids. So it's likely that there's some epigenetic regulation stemming from the body trying to adapt to an acute stressful environment and then not being able to turn off that signal. And you could take that template and apply it to probably a lot of different disease states and conditions in terms of the body trying to create an adaptive response to something that ends up getting stuck in a way, right? And and becoming pathological and, and non-functional over time. And so it's possible that, you know, adding the or the cannabinoids into the system can help kind of break that loop in a way. Gotcha. And you had mentioned the CBD kind of helps basically fortify that so that our own endogenous production can kind of ramp up, uh, so to speak. Is that going to be pretty much true across the board? Some more than others, I'm sure, but like CBD in general is going to be just pretty effective at allowing our body to, to build up that natural production? Yeah, that's right. And for certain people, that may be more impactful. You know, it, for other people, their problem might not be stemming from a low levels of endocannabinoids at all, right? Like in the case of, um, you know, something like obesity, where these pro- their people are probably already having excess levels of anandamide or other cannabinoids. So, you know, it kind of depends on just what the person's baseline is when they're adding these things in. And to answer your question in terms of downsides, there's really not a lot of long-term understanding, but at least in the short term right now, it seems like there's very low downside to CBD uh, on its own. Is there like a, like a test where you can get blood work drawn to see where you may be deficient with these cannabinoids? Is like a, like getting the cholesterol panel done or well, how do you go about testing this? Yeah, right now the the genetics are probably the best way to do it. Um, as someone who's interested in it, there's not really a commercially available test. You know, this would mostly be uh, university research centers that are looking at endocannabinoid levels. Uh, but the genetics act as a pretty good proxy for understanding that. Gotcha, gotcha. Very cool, man. I'm learning a ton. What, uh, what just kind of to follow up here and, and recap. What what are you? taking and going with for with this knowledge like what are you excited about now what's on the horizon what are you predominantly focusing on uh in the future here yeah so um i am about to launch a practitioner training for people that are interested in running endocannabinoid genetics for their clients so if anyone is listening and you're a coach or practitioner and are thinking that it'd be nice to be able to provide more precise answers for your clients, you know, how they respond to cannabis. Is this something that's right for them? Um, people can go to, I have a website set up at cannadna.education, C-A-N-N-D-N-A.education, and they can sign up for the list and I'll be um, updating people as that's available in the next couple months. And so I've been working a lot on that. Um, and, you know, mostly that and seeing clients and helping people move towards optimal health in whatever way I can. But yeah, the uh, the practitioner training and um, getting people set up to be able to use this info 
uh, is kind of my my big project right now. Do you do like a, like one off consultation calls? Like someone has their raw genetic data, can they like schedule a, a consultation call with you? Yeah, yeah. Um, I offer free 30 minute consultations to anyone that's interested in just learning how we could work together. You know, I really like to take a little bit of time to understand what someone's needs are and look at different options as far as genetic analysis or ongoing coaching. So yeah, if someone has their genetics, um, feel free to reach out to me. And I also do have a test that I prefer to use that is really good with privacy and data ownership and uh, so if anyone's listening and you're like, you know, I, I would like to do this, but I've been kind of concerned that 23andMe is going to sell my data. Um, we have a private lab that all of that is out of the picture. And what what is the website for that? Uh, that's just my website, david-krantz.com. Nice. Well, shoot, man, I've got all my raw data. I may just link up with you and we can record a follow-up episode just going over the data or something like that. I don't know. I think they made it interesting. Yeah, that'd be cool. I'd love to, you know, add more layers to your understanding of your body and uh, be cool to go over it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, David, I certainly do appreciate the time. I've, like I said, learned quite a bit. Um, and let's definitely keep in touch because this, this does fascinate me for sure. Yeah. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed chatting with you and really enjoyed all the questions you asked. Just really, really spot on. Awesome. Well, keep doing what you're doing, man. I appreciate you. Thanks, man. Likewise. <laughs>